Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. Tonight we bring you number 41, Fargo. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And let's just get right into the show. Uh, Just to start off, as we do every week, our basic plot summary. Uh, Most people are generally familiar with this movie, but a pregnant police chief is investigating a series of homicides across the frozen tundra. Against a sprawling Minnesota landscape, a car salesman hires two criminals to kidnap his wife. But when the scene goes sour and wood chippers get involved, the haphazard kidnapping plot turns deadly serious. This uh, movie was nominated for Best Picture, Director for Joel Cohen, Supporting Actor for William H. Macy, Cinematography for Roger Deakins, and Editing. It won for Best Actress for Frances McDormand, an original screenplay for Joel and Ethan Cohen. It was a 2006 entrant in the, into the National Film Registry. The AFI 1998 list had it as number 84 on their list of top 100 films of all time, but was excluded in its 2007 list. And soon it will have achieved uh, five seasons of a critically acclaimed TV series based on the same universe. So, what is your relationship to this movie, Dad? Well, yeah, there. You know, when you come from, uh, yeah, come from uh, the fact that you have a wife who's from rural Minnesota, or families from rural Minnesota, yeah, you know, um, and they every uh, bar scene in the movie was like a bar scene where her grandparents lived in southwest Minnesota. There, you know, and. All of them had the same pool table, the same Art Deco chairs, and they had the pool table with the Schmidt beer sign hanging above it. That's what they did there. Are you going to do the Minnesota nice accent the whole time? Uh, no, just just for another minute. When I watched this film, when it went to video in there about 1987 97 or 98, um, I showed or my, your mother and I watched it on video. And she got so offended because she said, they don't talk like that in Minnesota. And I said, yeah, they do. You just don't hear it. So at the risk, although we currently, from what I'm seeing from tracking, don't have a lot of Minnesota listeners, at some point we wouldn't mind. But from the sheer basis of what uh, this movie is, first off, you do, to a certain extent, talk like this. You do. Even parts of northern Wisconsin, the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, you talk like this. Now, it's a little overblown and a little done to a certain extreme, but it was to, let's say, lighten up a rather dark and cynical movie. Yes. It's because of the Canadians. It's the Canadian influence. Yeah. They just don't go, eh. So I remember that the first Coen Brothers movie I watched was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which we'll cover at some point in time. I don't remember a ton about the movie. I remember liking it when I was a kid, but I can't remember why. The next one I watched was a awfully strange movie, at which point I think I vowed never to watch another Coen Brothers movie. Uh, And that was The Lady Killers with Tom Hanks. Yes, then they, Colonel they, Sanders. Yeah, a Colonel Sandal, Sanders-like character. The next movie that I remember and that I saw of theirs was No Country for Old Men, and I 
I just generally did not understand, appreciate, or like the film at the time. I think it's better in context. This, frankly, the movie we're about to discuss should be like the entrance point that you have to watch in order to watch No Country for Old Men. Because that'll get you into the headspace that you need in order to watch that movie. They're very similar movies, and I, I think this is actually a better version of the type of story that they were trying to tell there. And that No Country for Old Men, while some people think it's a, an outstanding movie, I honestly think this is a, a better version. And to a certain extent, their best picture win that year is a little bit of a makeup for this uh, film losing. That being said... You had a comment. Well, I just was going to say, uh, having uh, been a, or having uh, or, or being a fan of both films, they're both exposés of the human experience of what it takes and how humans go about survival in general. And I mean, this this is a film about money and power and what you're willing to put or risk in order to try to get ahead or what you perceive as getting ahead. And it, it's a very warped view of humanity in general, as is No Country for Old Men. The next movie that I do remember watching past that, uh, as far as I can remember, though, was True Grit. And that movie I really enjoyed from the Coen brothers. So I kind of have come around, back and forth as to my opinion on them on multiple occasions. Currently, I'm in the space that I entertain and um, enjoy or appreciate certain films, including this one uh, that I only saw this year. So this was something I watched in quarantine for the first time. I'm not sure why I had it such in my head, other than for the longest time that I had this kind of like self-imposed embargo on Coen Brother films, but... I, I did finally break down and watch this one this year. This is probably about the second or third time I've seen it now, um, just this this year, 2020. And to a certain extent, this does reflect a kind of 2020 attitude. So you've kind of touched on what the movie is about a little bit by uh, comparing it against No Country for Old Men. But uh, let me just kind of move into that one so that we kind of have a, a natural evolution of the show tonight. You know, what is this movie about? It's a cynical and nihilistic take on crime. I mean, at the heart of this, this is a crime movie. But it's also incredibly cynical on the criminal itself, because these guys are blundering idiots, and it really gives you no reason or motivation why they're doing the crime other than money. Like, the the thing that epitomizes this movie, and I think it's why... Uh, they put these lines in, much in the same way that you pointed out No Country for Old Men has that speech that Tommy Lee Jones gives at the end of the movie. Similarly, Frances McDormand gives basically a similar speech at the end of this movie. When she's in the cop car, she's got the guy in the back, and the thing's over, and she just kind of gives this summation line, which I'll bring up later, but that all of this is just for a little bit of money, I don't understand it. And it's the part that when I watched it with Sarah, she just couldn't understand. She didn't understand this movie whatsoever, that the whole point of it is is that sometimes we can't explain, and the answer is is that there is no good answer to why people do certain things. 
Yeah. So, similarly, the one thing that I will say, and which is why I appreciate this movie a little bit more, is it does add a little bit of a cherry on top, a kind of lightheartedness, not just to the humor, but um, of a message of maybe uh, contentedness and appreciating the small things in life. I mean, ultimately, you're trying to see the crime through Marge's eyes, and that's kind of your entrance point as an audience, is she's reflective or a mirroring character of what the audience experience is supposed to be. I don't understand why this took place in the first place, and all of this is for a little bit of money. There are more important things. They're going to have their first child. She's supportive. She's trying to be understanding and encouraging to her husband when the biggest thing in his world is getting a drawing or a painting of his on a three-cent stamp. Like, so, but those things are for small Midwestern life are incredibly important. I think there's something... um, encouraging that in as cynical and nihilistic a film as this is due to the crime elements that it does put that little element of uh, or ray of light at the end of it that kind of just says not all of life has to be this way that people can choose or make different options or different values and priorities and there is a lot of midwestern value in that well Having um, been a criminal defense attorney for 17 years in my previous life, as I like to say, uh, this really spoke to me because even though crime and murder are very serious situations and, you know, I don't mean to take lightheartedness about this, but sometimes the sheer stupidity of the people involved is comical. And so this is a very black humor film because, I mean, from the scene, you know, I mean, to the fact of the the uh, wood chipper to the fact that, well, she was shrieking, so I just knocked her over and killed her. Um, you know, I mean, just the, the sheer fact of how everything in this film is done and how they're willing to turn on each other and, and screw each other at a moment's turn. I mean, it's just unbelievable, uh, except, or it would be unbelievable if I hadn't spent 17 years involved with this stuff. It well, is so true. Yeah, not to mention how this probably is a better representation of crime than almost anything else. From all of the stories that you've discussed, you know, we don't need to go down that wormhole of some of the really dumb things that you've represented <laughs> over your time. But th- yeah. there are just some stories that immediately come to mind of all of the stupid crap that happens and how insane some of these stories are of just gross criminal activity. Obviously, I, I try and say that as tactfully as possible, but there is so much of this blundering that happens because most crime is pretty much done by um, not smart people. I think your phrase at one time when I was very young was, uh, smart people aren't criminals because they don't get caught. Yes. 
I, I've said that all along. Usually even smart people who get caught, it's because they've gone to the well when too many times. You know, if you yeah, that's if you're gonna do a, an insider call, but if you're gonna do an insider trading action, you do it one time, you walk away with a few million dollars, nobody knows. They don't figure it out. But you think you're above it. You got away with it. So of course you go back to the well and you try it again. And you might get away with it a second time. But the third time? One of the things I didn't realize before I started really digging into the circumstances and context of this film is that Joel and Ethan Cohen are actually from Minnesota. And yes. so, yeah, so this is kind of bringing a lot of their Midwesterner aspect to it, uh, probably more than any other film. I think this is probably the most personal film that they ever did, and I think it's notable that it's probably their best. But let's, unless you have something to say. I, I just was going to add that actually the, the the title of this film originally was Brainerd. Because the entire thing either takes place in the Twin Cities or in Brainerd, Minnesota. They're never uh, in Fargo. Other than the first scene. They're never in Fargo. The first scene is in Fargo. Well, that's the only tie to Fargo. Because other than that, they're not in Fargo. They only changed it to Fargo because they thought it sounded cooler. Well, I mean, they've gotten multiple seasons of a TV show and a movie based on that thing. And it's the thing Fargo is most associated with, other than maybe fracking and oil. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, so best performance. Uh, who did you have down? I loved Steve Buscemi. I, I just, I, I understand that Bill Macy was was really good in this film and uh, and such, but I really like Steve Buscemi because to me, he was the epitome of the just the criminal that would be doing this, and uh, <laughs> it just he he just. It was clear to me that this guy had something, even though he is, by all all uh, calculations, a weird-looking dude. <laughs> yeah, he's some kind of weird-looking dude. Well, how so? weird-looking? Yeah. Can you, like, describe it better for me? No, nah, not really. He's just kind of a weird-looking dude. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I personally, I mean, I've seen Steve Buscemi in so many different things at this point that he probably should be on this uh, character actor list that uh, you're doing. Um, he is. Okay, there are uh, quite a few glaring omissions on the list you started to show me. Yes, folks, I have capitulated and I have finally given in. We are going to do a um, top ten character actors episode. Uh, to appease Dana, but we'll get to that at a different point, maybe towards the end of this show. I had him down as my best secondary performer, so it, it's just good to cover that this in a lump. Uh, I I agree. I think he is fantastic in this role, and there are a lot of roles that he's been good at. He's a, a really great actor, but not a classically, like, he's not going to ever be a movie star. He's oddly been a leading man in a couple of things, but he's always that kind of crazy-eyed character that 
just fits into so many roles that you wouldn't expect. And the fact that this guy has created such an acting career is somewhat extraordinary. But I, I don't know. There, he's accessible. Uh, he's funny. He's likably odd. There, there are just so many engaging parts to him and all of his performance, but at the same time, in this particular one, there's he's probably the most accessible and vulnerable character outside of William H. Macy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would agree. I mean, he he has managed to make quite the, the, the career out of being just that weird-looking dude. Well, I mean, you think about just his 90s run. He's in this movie. He's also in The Big Lebowski um, he's in, uh, I think Billy Madison, he's in a handful of other movies where he's just kind of that guy. And then he kind of goes on in the mid two thousands, late two thousands, and he's gotten, uh, quite a bit more star power or, uh, that like we, we readily know his name. He's not just a, that guy anymore, but you know, he for his many things. He had a small part in Pulp Fiction. He had a, an uncredited him. part in Billy Madison. He had uh, a, a part in Escape from L.A. He had a part in uh, Con Air, The Big Lebowski. He uh, did several episodes of the Drew Carey Show. He was in The uh, Wedding Singer, Big Daddy. Mm, yeah, um, he did a lot of Sandler comedies. He did voiceovers in Monsters and Monster or Monsters, Inc., he, I think he was the villain in Monsters, Inc., if I remember right. Yeah, Mr. Deeds, Spy Kids. Um, I'm just going through. He was in the he was in several episodes of The Sopranos. Yes. Uh, he did voiceover in Charlotte's Web. I'm just going well, through the list here. He notably led Boardwalk Empire for a while. Oh, yeah. Which was I like... I mean, that was... I have never been able to sit through and, and watch the entire thing, but that was a very good show. It's worth, I think at some point I'm going to try and sit down and do it, uh, going through the entire show. But Well, um, there's a backlog just, of great HBO TV, and to a certain extent that was really well produced. I wouldn't say that I thought it was a, a great show the farther it got away from the beginning because it, it just kind of lost its premise at a certain point. But it, it's an interesting and well put together TV show, if that makes sense. Or um, I'm not trying to knock it completely. It's just from a storytelling perspective, I thought it lost a little as it went along. But he, I mean, he's had a very nice career as a character actor, and he's you know oh, yeah. he's 62 years old. He's had a long career. He's well, done he's a very good that, job. He's got that TV show, I think with. Is it Elijah Wood that's on like FX where he's playing God? I think that um, might be. That's like like season two or three at this point, something like uh, that. So. And I I will um I will note by the way that um, um his one of his better probably his best friend is also one on my broad list of character actors that I broad would be understating it, but okay. Yes, Stanley Tucci. He oh. was uh, he was Stanley Tucci's uh, best man. Um, he married uh, Felicity Blunt, who I believe is Emily Blunt's sister. 
<laughs> which makes Stanley Tucci and John Krasinski brother-in-laws. Anyway, uh, let's move into my best performance, though. I had Joel and Ethan Cohen. I think because of the personality that they put into this, this is uh, their most personal film. Again, I keep repeating, I think it's their best film. Again, just an opinion, but that for the writing, conceptualization, um, the directing, all of the pieces that put together for this film, there really weren't any films like this. Obviously, there were crime thrillers, but they were more serious. They were action-laden this is the one where it's kind of that dark humor, really cynical take that's um, a little less serious, but seems to have that kind of dopey uh, crime realism that we were talking about before. And I think to a certain extent, they've created a subgenre of film by this movie. Uh, obviously evidenced by the fact that they, the TV show was spun off and, you know, they're going into their fifth season. I think it's currently being uh, put out uh, on FX at the moment with, uh, I think Chris Rock is leading it, but it's more of a period piece this season. Don't remember exactly. It's kind of a anthology series at this point where each season is a different thing. That being said, uh, who was your sec- best secondary performer? It's kind of hard to say she was a secondary performer because she won the Academy Award, but Basemi had such a a powerful presence in this film. I I mean, I I had to go with Frances McDermott because she did such a good job. It was so clear what her level of talent she had. Um, If it wasn't that Basemi just seemed to dominate every scene he was in, she would have easily been the number one. So I had uh, Bashemi down, but I have Francis McDormand as my most charismatic. And I, we probably should mention William H. Macy at some point, that he kind of epitomized equally this vulnerable character who seems awfully desperate, but is Midwestern wholesome. So he's got to play a very layered role. And I, I do just want to briefly recognize how complicated his uh, situation was that he had to um, hit a lot of different marks. But as far as most charismatic, I had Frances McDormand, and I think it's her most approachable role. She kind of really comes off as, again, the mirror of the audience and thus reflects a lot of the the audience reaction as things are happening in a lot of ways through this movie, but she never really loses her cool. She's always in control of the situation. So in a certain way, she's kind of above or um, in control of the situation. It's kind of a a weird way of expressing it that she's both... Uh, 10,000 feet above the scene. Sure. Maybe that's a good way of, of looking at it, but... Equally, she seems to be both the nicest person on the face of the planet and not only the most competent law enforcement person, but ultimately the only person that um, seems destined to be able to catch these guys in this kind of weird scenario. And she kind of even then stumbles into 
uh, how this situation even came about anyway. Finding the uh, car out at the lake, and then obviously we'll go into the final scene there, but I don't know how best to, to, to just describe it other than she's extremely likable, and because of the complication of how you have to similarly play the audience's reaction, it's a much tougher role, and I can appreciate that, even though I think uh, the role that she won her second Best Actress uh, for might have been a much tougher performance. It required much more uh, nuanced range of emotions. With most charismatic, I went with William H. Macy. He he has always been this actor who's been on the edge. He's always kind of not been a star, but close to a star, but always put in a great performance and had really done a, a, a job. And it was one of these guys that you just noticed. Interestingly, he was not the one that the, the, that, uh, the Coen brothers had selected to do this part. They had him read for it just because, but they actually cast someone else. Do you have any clue who? I didn't come across that, no. Richard Jenkins. That'd be a much different character. Um, Macy, though, was so, after reading the part, was so uh, sure he was the person to do it, he, on his own dime, flew to Hollywood again and and met during a production meeting with the Cullens and convinced them that he should do the part. So they gave him the part. Well, I think one of the things that I came across in my own research was not only that, but he walked into the room, said, guys, I think you're about to give my part away to the wrong person, which is a yeah. real power move, if you ask me. But I, I've very much considered him for most charismatic. I want to give him credit, but my problem with giving him most charismatic is that usually I find the most charismatic person likable, and at a certain point in this movie, I just hated his character for two particular scenes. One, or let, Let's make that even three. When he's trying to convince the GM salesman that, uh, oh, I'm just going to fax that right over. No, don't fax it. And then, the, like, this cycle of just crap where he's the car salesman and he's really shady and it's just, like, irks me in the, the worst way. Uh, yes. When he's rehearsing his um, speech to his father-in-law before he calls him to say that his wife has been kidnapped. To me, that, that just – I know that happens. It's actually a good scene to have in the film, but I'm just like – Dude, you can't summon up even a small amount of emotion from thinking about your wife actually being kidnapped? Like, <laughs> really? I mean, yeah. it shouldn't take much to be a little method on that particular note. And then finally, his last scene where he's he ends up fleeing, fleeing the dealership, he is so weaselly that I just, oh, it, it's like nails on a chalkboard, that scene for me. And yeah. ultimately, it's why one of my favorite scenes, I didn't nominate it, I don't think, here for uh, best scene, but um, that that final piece where they finally catch up to him, and he's trying to crawl out the bathroom window, and they 
nab him out of the bathroom and throw him up against the bed, and he's just struggling. And I'm like, yes, the fucker. Two two honorable mentions I'll give. One uh, is Harv uh, Presnell, who was uh, the father-in-law, Wade Gustafson. He actually was a big band singer and dancer early in his career. Um, uh, acting became more or less a, uh, a late-in-life thing, where he started playing the parts of older men in different films. Um, a very powerful guy, I mean, as far as presence in the screen. It was, he filled, whenever he was there, he filled the screen. Um, the other one that I would point out, uh, John Carroll Lynch, yeah. who has had a long career being, oh, that guy. And um, uh, he's actually starting to get better roles now, uh, again, being the older man. He and I are uh, about uh, three months difference in age. And so I've just kind of noted that uh, aspect. By the way, um, they ha- the Coens had written no background uh, into the script for Marge and Norm. So Joel turned to to Francis, who I believe is his wife. I think it's she's married to one of them. I don't know if it's yeah. I can't remember if she's married to Ethan or Joel. Said, "Why don't you and John figure out your backstory?" So they sat and like had lunch, and they wrote their entire backstory: how they fell in love, what his why he was not working. Um, you know, they came up with this whole thing about the artist and the stamp and all that. That was all theirs. They they came up with all that background. So yeah, she's married to Joel since 1984. Okay. Anyway, but I, I just wanted to give two shouts out to them. Let's move to best scene though. Uh, what is your first nominee? Uh, the the true coat. You know that true coat that is a good one. You know, you need to have that true coat. And I'm like, I, that's been every freaking car I bought, you dumb shit. Well, it comes from the thing at the factory. I mean, there's not a whole lot I can do for you there. You know what? I'll go talk to my manager and see, you know, if I can knock some of that off of you. All right, I, I talked to him, and um, we we could take a full $100 off of that true coat. Uh, God, that just... That drives me bananas. That that scene, and I, I just I feel the guy's anger so much because it. Uh, first off, everybody has been on that side of the table with the car salesman, so like you understand it. But this is more annoying to me than like irritating. It, it's not to the point of being irritating because of uh, the circular logic that he constantly is doing. But yeah, I. I I think that scene works very well for displaying the full range of William H. Macy's character in Jerry. Uh, all right, my first one that I'm going to nominate. Uh, let's do Finder's Fee. So I know we're focusing a bit on Jerry, but the the way he's just simply dumbfounded about uh, the situation, and I don't know why he can't ultimately... Um, maybe it's it's part of the film and maybe a gap in my understanding of the plotting of this that he's um trying to swindle things from the car uh dealership and thus um he needs the money to basically cover all of his shadiness 
in in trying to do these crimes, or if it's a matter that he needs the money for something, some other reason. But wouldn't you think that a quote unquote finder's fee of a deal that's like three quarters of a million dollars or something else, even if you charged like ten percent, would basically be the equivalent of what they were talking about um, for uh, giving in the ransom money? Because uh, let's say for a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar deal, ten percent is going to be seven or seventy five thousand dollars, and He's talking about, well, we're going to ransom her for $80,000. You get half, I get half. That's 40000 So just on sheer numbers and math, none of that seems to work out. But outside of the logic of that scene, it, it there just seems to be this weird gap, and it works extremely well in the um, dialogue for me in that scene where they're going between the three of them, and it's like there's just – you, have you ever been in the uh, part of a conversation where uh, two people are basically talking past each other and they just don't understand the other? It, it really feels like that, and I related so much to that situation where there, there seems to be just this gap. And then ultimately the one person gets extra frustrated because they have much more on the line. So for all of the, the emotional aspects of that scene and – how funny I guess it is. I, I, I'm not it's not like laugh out loud funny, but it is kind of the dark humor that this uh, film has. I, I just enjoyed that scene. The the actual ransom was a lot more than the eighty. Because he was actually um I mean, you know, he had that whole bag full of money. It was like two hundred thousand dollars, two hundred fifty thousand. I think it, in, you know, I saw somewhere that it was up to a million. Okay, and really, what he was doing was he was lying to the criminals about splitting the money. So he was screwing them before he ever even hired them. And um, and the reason he needed so much cash was because he owed like four hundred thousand dollars to GMAC to cover all these cars that he had sold and pocketed the cash, which is why they kept calling and asking for the uh, VIN numbers, the vehicle identification numbers. So that's where the thing came in. He needed a lot more money than 80000 80000 was just the lie that he was even telling to the, to the uh, other criminals so that he didn't have to split more. All right, so logically that does make a little bit more sense, but did you have anything else to add on that scene? No. All right, so what's your next nominee then? Uh, morning Sickness. Okay. That That is somewhat of a – I mean that moment is indelible enough that it's on the poster for this movie, but all right, why did that stick out for you? I just always remember, hey, Margie, you okay there? And I just You're always remember so that. there, Margie. Yeah. Oh, just a little morning sickness here, you know. I'm good. I'll be fine. Yeah. I know that you said that um, it was difficult to nominate her for secondary performance, but she's not in this movie a ton. And frankly, it's like a good half hour into like a hour and 40 minute movie before she even shows up because this is like the first appearance of her, and it's not even until, like, a good portion into the movie. 
Yeah, I understand your point. Frankly, in most years, you would think, depending on how they nominate things, that uh, she would have been competing for Best uh, Supporting Actress, not necessarily um, uh, Best Actress, but interesting how things sometimes sort out. All right, Uh, I'm going to go with the uh, first scene, the hiring of the kidnappers, and I'll I'll bother to read the, the dialogue. Uh, to part of this, because I think this really kind of set the tone for the film. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Jerry Lundegaard. You're Jerry Lundegaard? Yeah, Shep Proudfoot said Shep said you'd be here at 7.30. What gives, man? Oh, Shep said 8.30. We've been sitting here an hour. He's peed three times already. Oh, I'm so sure sorry. Shep told me 8.30. It was a mix-up, I guess. Okay, we have the guy trying to hire two criminals in the middle of a rural bar in Fargo, North Dakota, and this is the introduction to all of them, and all of the like folksiness and kind of humor of the situation, that this is how we're introduced to all of this cast of just weird characters. And so I think this might be one of the funniest scenes of the entire movie. And it's wrapped right into that first moment where we really familiarize ourselves with what the tone of this movie is going to be. All right, what do you got left? The uh, the actual um, parking lot scene the with uh, Wade meeting up with Carl for the exchange of the money. I think that that scene is... I have seen so many of those instances through my career where you can just see that that's where things took place, that kind of an exchange. And it just, it it was tragic, it was almost hilarious, um, it was dark, it was, it, it kind of summed up the stupidity of it. You know, Ultimately, Wade is more worried about his money than himself. You know, he, you know, these guys are dangerous. He's got a gun, and he's like, "No, I want my daughter. I'm not giving you the money until I see my daughter." It just, it just kind of like, it's only money. Yeah, this really does play into that sense that I, I said before of how utterly cynical and nihilistic the take on this this movie is and that all of this stuff would basically tell you that nothing matters and that you should be valuing a lot different things that you that your priorities are completely off because if you're um overvaluing you know money or uh what it may or may not give you that ultimately you may find yourself in some type of really odd situation like this with unsavory characters obviously this is an extreme sense of that but so i'm gonna i have um two more Uh, i'll go with my second to last one on this one but uh when they actually kidnap gene so she's sitting there and i i Forget if she was watching like a, a game show or um, a soap opera or something else, but the guy basically walks up to the patio window and he's looking inside and she just stares at him. Who in their right mind in Midwestern uh, America 
is watching a guy in a black ski mask who's peering in your window and just sits there and watches him do it. Like, I was almost to the point of yelling at the movie, what are you doing? Like, go get the phone, call 911, something. I mean, it was just such an odd film or uh, moment. And for uh, her running upstairs into the bathroom, then trying to get out the window and all of the other parts of this, I, I think it has to be the funniest kidnapping that I, I've ever seen. I mean, obviously, the whole point of it is kidnapping is not supposed to be funny, but even in this moment, everything was just bumbling. And then ultimately, uh, she gets knocked unconscious because she uh, falls down the stairs. And that's how they are able to uh, essentially take her away. I don't know. It, there, there are just so many back-and-forth pieces to this. And it, it's almost like a, a dance, how they have to perform this entire sequence that I, I think it is one of the best scenes of the movie. Do you have any left? Uh, the Wood Chipper. All right, that was my last one, but go ahead. Um, it's just, a, it's, it, it's going to be my most indelible moment, too, because that's the scene I always remembered from this film, was him... You know, pushing the leg down, trying to push it into the wood chipper and the blood and parts all over the snow. And I mean, it's just, you know, I don't know if anybody ever thought about using a wood chipper to dispose of a body before that. But um, I've seen it so many times referenced after that that it's just kind of interesting to say the least. So this movie starts off and claims that it's a true story, and the only thing that's been changed are the names. And there had been, for a long time, a question as to how true this movie was and what they borrowed from. And a couple of years ago, Ethan Cohen finally kind of explained that they wanted to do, uh, essentially, we wanted to make a movie just in the genre of a true story movie. You don't have to have a true story to make your true story movie. So uh, the two parts that actually are based on anything in reality is the uh, guy that was defrauding the General Motors and changing serial numbers and um, taking extra cash on the side, that sort of thing. And that element of the movie. The other thing was there was a murder in Connecticut where a man killed his wife and disposed of the body, he put her into a wood chipper. That's the only other element of this movie that has any basis in reality. (laughs) Yeah, okay. But the, the suspense of the scene. So first off, these guys have been absolutely brutal. We just got done with the one guy killing his partner with an axe. And how we conclude Steve Buscemi's character is... Marge, who is the small-town cop who doesn't call for backup, hears this buzzing sound, walks around the building, and we see this, like, um, snow hill of blood. And ultimately, even this is such, a like, a humorous moment because she points the gun at him. He can't hear her for a while, and all you see is this foot with its shoe on sticking out of the wood chipper. Yes. I mean, it's such a weird moment. 
I ultimately agree, and so since you made this your most indelible moment, I mean, it frankly is for me, too. The only addition I'll say is, is as far as indelible moment is the Minnesota nice accent. I'm going to use that as, like, honorable mention for the the um, indelibleness of this movie, but that whole scene is iconic. Uh, we, we It's been pop-culturally referenced all over the place, and... I don't know. It, it just kind of gives a uh, different sense of how, I guess, to murder someone. I mean, there, there's so many unique things in this movie. Yeah, I know. I, I, I it, it really is a powerful moment because it's the one. That's the one scene that I remembered the best. That well, the two scenes I remembered was this and the Margie. Uh, how you doing there? Well, I mean, it's just so utterly shocking. You would not expect, like, of all the things that he could be doing to a body, putting it through the wood chipper is the thing you would least expect. <laughs> yeah. So, ultimately, I, I find them to have done a, a really good job of putting that together. But uh, So, all right, we've nominated all of ours. What do you find would be the best scene, though? Ultimately, I uh, I like the whole scene with her at the crime scene, piecing it together, because it showed what she was. She might be this small-town chief who, you know, but she has some real savvy because she was able to piece together almost instantaneously what took place and how it all happened. Yeah, I can definitely buy that. Uh, ultimately, I, I'm going to go with the wood chipper. I know that it's our most indelible moment, but I think it's also the best scene because how shocking all of this is, the tenseness that's in that scene, how it finally ends, uh, all of the pieces that kind of build up to and then are satisfied by that one moment. I, I think it was a really good ending, and ultimately you reward a movie for having a really good and creative ending. I just I, I find that to probably be the best scene, even though there are several others that are very deserving. Uh, what's your favorite scene? Probably the climactic or the ending scene, which is more to life than a little money. I just like that scene because I think it's the uh, you know it's the kind of the summation. So I'm gonna go with uh, kidnapping Gene. I don't know why it works, that it's such an odd part of this movie, but it's so awkwardly funny for as serious as that moment is in the movie. I don't know why it works so well. It just does. And for all of the choreography of the how the scene has to take place and the, the energy, the pacing, all of that, it just works for me in a, in a really great way. I, I don't know why. And you wouldn't think that... Like, somebody being kidnapped would be a, a great scene to rewatch, but it is. I don't know if I'd say that about any other movie. All right, so we already gave our most indelible moment. Uh, this seems like a good time to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. All right, let's jump right into best line. Uh, I read a nominee already. Did you have one that you wanted to start with? 
Would it kill you to say something? Would it kill you to say something? I did. I did. I love that. That scene in the car where they're going back and forth. And uh, uh, Carl is uh, just complaining that he doesn't say anything. It obviously puts you on the tenuous nature of their relationship, which obviously pays off in the end, which we've mentioned on on multiple occasions. But it also leads to that kind of tense situation where there's very little trust between the two and that this partnership um, is kind of thrown together to a certain extent, um, ultimately leading to the triple homicide that happens with the state trooper and uh, the two, let's say, drivers by. It's an interesting moment within context. I don't know if uh, I resonate with the line nearly as much as uh, unless it's within the context. Again, this is a lot of situational or like contextual humor than it is um, uh, one word lines or, or not one word, but like um, – one-liner type of situations. I have another one I'll quick throw up before you do. Okay. So that was uh, Mrs. Uh, Lundegaard on the floor in there. And I guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper? And those three people in Brainerd. And for what? For a little bit of money. There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? That here you are... And it's a beautiful day. Well, I just don't understand it. You stole the one I was just about to do. Anyway, yeah, this is the summation line we keep talking about and kind of plays into the notion of the whole movie. It's that ending speech. um, We're going to wrap this up in a tidy bow um, type of dialogue that... uh, frankly, the the Coen brothers often do. Uh, All right, I'll move to my next one, though. Um, Marge and Officer Olsen say, Lou, did you hear the one about the guy who couldn't afford personalized plates, so he went and changed his name to J3L2404? Yeah, that's a good one. That is so Midwestern. Did you have any others? Um, Marge, you betcha. Yeah, I had it as one of, I I basically lumped three together of the, let's call them the accent lines. You're darn tootin'. Oh, geez. Yeah. And, um, I always think of, um, years ago, and I'll just tell this story real briefly, because after all, I mean, this is our show, and... You know, reminiscence is part of it. But going with your mother to see her grandparents at spring break when we first got engaged and uh, um, meeting your great-grandpa, Wally, for the first time. I mean, that was one of those lines that he always used. I mean, this is south southwestern Minnesota. And he was an old farmer. And he, you know, you betcha. And he used that line, and I'm like, there actually are people who you say, you betcha. Oh, please, okay. we're surrounded by them in everyday life. I mean, now, I a little... 
No, I mean, it is constantly a thing. Uh, you would be surprised uh, how little you notice it until you try and start noticing it around your office. Like, I don't hear it down here anymore because I, I moved a little south to, let's say, a little bit more metropolitan urban area. But rural up there in uh, central Wisconsin, there, there's a lot of this in there even. But you have to understand, when I was uh, first engaged to your mother, I was from Beloit, which was on the state Wisconsin-Illinois border, and I was in law school at Marquette in Matt, Milwaukee. I didn't have that, you know. I didn't. Uh, I didn't have the Polish influence from Stevens Point, uh, or the Scandahuvians up here that are running all over the the central part of the state, you know. Yeah, you're you know now. You know. Yeah, the amount of times I hear all of that integrated into your regular speech pattern when I'm doing all the editing for the show. <laughs> you know, hey. You betcha. Yeah. Anyway, did you have any other nominees? I'm just I saying. Don't... Anyway, no, I don't have anything else. Okay. So what is the... I, I, I'm pretty sure you and I have the best, same best line. It's the summation. Yeah. Little bit of money. Well, I'm gonna put these in honorable mention. Um, the accent lines, more or less. Um, I suppose I could space them out, but uh, and I'll I'll put the other pieces like funniest line, just so that we actually have one this week. But um, those. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. we've had so many like serious movies. Um, yes. So. All right, do you want to move into our Stanley rubric? Yes. Uh, What do you have down for Legacy? Uh, This is a film that has had legs, and the fact that it's come back as a um, TV show, uh, the first series kind of based along the same lines and then subsequently, I gave this a 9. I had the exact same number. Uh, part of that has to do with, I, I think part of it is that we grade it down from what we thought a 10 was, and that's such a certain extreme. But the fact that we have a TV show based on this universe, the fact that I've already mentioned that I think it's kind of created a sub-genre, um, that I think this is another one that if we revisit it in like 10 years, uh, as far as Oscar mistakes that this movie would likely win over the English patient um, for best picture. Yeah. yeah. A movie uh, that at some point we will cover. Uh, yeah. Okay. By the way, just to show the, the level of this, okay, um, your mother and I, because of the fact that she was a coordinator for a student exchange, foreign exchange program, her, her supervisor was in, lived in New York City with her husband who was a in the DA's office in in Manhattan. And they came out and visited some another coordinator from Minnesota. And they kept going on and on about how, you know, they're going to Minnesota. Is this going to be Fargo? And they're like laughing because oh of course this is silly. 
and they went up to the Iron Range, which is the horn that kind of kind of goes over the top of Lake Superior. It's you know full, where all the iron ore was, and they would or, or mine it, send it to Duluth, and all right, all right. And they came back, and they were just like their jaws were slack because they're like they actually talk like that up there. So it has wide wide legs uh impact significance what'd you have down i had an eight boy we're really mirroring each other but why'd you have an eight um i think that it kind of established this kind of black humor um crime story to some extent and i mean there were other aspects where this kind of happened um, the interesting thing is, is the 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 Cohen brothers. This film is to some degree an homage of of, of directors that influence them in filmmaking. Um, there's a reason why the term "the old in and out" is used by uh, Bashimi when he's talking about getting a prostitute. That was taken from Clockwork Orange, and then one of the songs that they play is. These boots are made for walking from or by Nancy Sinatra, and that was taken from Full Metal Jacket. This was a Kubrick tribute, but the story itself, <clears throat> the kind of the humor of this, the black humor, was taken from uh, Hitchcock's last film, which is Family Plot, that had Bruce Dern in it, okay. and it's kind of that thing that the Coens were kind of like paying homage to the directors they found influential all right but how does that how does that make the movie impactful or significant in the immediate well it took it took those elements and kind of i think made it possible for some of the other directors who've done similar type of things and i would i would point to um um Am I drawing a blank? I can picture him. Um, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, but that was before this. But, I mean, it's that whole thing. And and Pulp Fiction's kind of like that. But, I mean, I think it kind of started this black humor comedy again that really hadn't been a genre in, in, in filmmaking. It was hard, hard to say... I mean, there weren't too many films that kind of laughed about murder. There are some very funny moments of Pulp Fiction that I, I, I would tend to disagree with that notion, and that had come out a, a couple of years before this. But this is part of a batch of films in the early to mid to late, basically the 90s, that are all these small-time filmmakers that are kind of these independent guys and it, it kind of helped establish uh, the system we currently have where you make your name as kind of an indie film director. And after you get one or two uh, made or that people like, then you might get a studio film and uh, certain things of that as opposed to studios buying up uh, certain directors. But that they have the ability. I mean, we've seen that with... Oh, Damien Chazelle, we've seen it with Taika Waititi, uh, Noah Baumbach. All of these guys are, are kind of from that same mold that, that started in this. And I think that 
this fits into that, that the Coens had made other movies before this, but they kind of got their uh, break by being part of the indie scene in this movie and getting it nominated for Best Picture. I mean, this was part of the award scene. I, I think you have to put that into the calculation of impact significance. But this wasn't a like box office favorite, and I think I also grade it down just slightly from my level of legacy because I think this movie is appreciated over time as opposed to depreciate. And I think that within uh, you know the first couple of years, it actually took on more legs than it did maybe in the moment. The reviews were great and the critics all liked this, but this wasn't a movie that necessarily caught on to the public um, that I can tell. Uh, I don't remember going through this. It wasn't a movie that, like, I experienced, but it wasn't, like, this huge box office success or this cultural phenomenon or anything of of that nature. So I'd almost even be tempted to go down from that, but since we both had an eight, I think that's probably a good spot to leave it for now. This was a film that, um, I mean, this is during that black period of my life where, I had small children, and you just didn't bother even going to the movies because you couldn't yeah, afford to. Yeah, we've talked about it before. And so, but this film, this, and I can't even remember, but it was something to the extent that someone, you know, it, it, back in those days, I spent a lot of time in the courthouse waiting for things, and you'd stand around, and you'd chit-chat with the lawyers, and somebody said, oh, I saw this movie, you got to see it, it's available on on. I want to say VHS at the time, and I think it was, you know, you got to get it and whatever. And so you go to the the uh, family video. We didn't even have Blockbuster around at that time. And you didn't got the video quite yet. Huh? Didn't even have family video quite yet. That might have been. I can't even remember where we went, would have went. But uh, this is that heyday, yes. You are correct in that. So... You know, and that's where we would have gotten this. And it was one of those where somebody told me, go see this film, and it's about, and they told me what it was, and I, of course, got it without telling your mother what it was about. Uh, novelty, what did you have down? I had an eight, because even though there were some of the uh, other films, that, like I mentioned earlier in the show, like uh, Family Plot, um, that existed that kind of had this tongue-in-cheek black humor aspect to it. This was one that kind of, like, put it out there. You know, and it kind of started a tradition that the Coen Brothers films were just a little different. You can definitely tell there's a stylistic choice to all of them, as you kind of have alluded to right there. And their sense of humor is a little different, and it is a bit of an acquired taste to a certain extent, but this movie is probably their most humorous, uh, let's say, crime film. It might also be the closest to um, full realism of, like, small-town or rural crime, if you will, and... I think there are a lot of unique parts to this. There there aren't a whole lot of movies that take on this subject matter, uh, this environment that are made um, kind of with a lot of Midwestern values uh, being a central part of this. I, I gave it a 9, so it'll, it'll average out to an 8.5. But I, I, 
I think this is a rather unique film, even among their own film history. And I know that to a certain extent, somebody would, um, I, I have already in this show kind of compared it against No Country for Old Men, which is a much darker, more serious, um, kind of dark or uh, dire tone. But I, I don't think there are a whole lot of other movies you could compare this against for being a crime dramedy. I mean, that, that's its own thing to a certain extent, because that the No Country for Old Men isn't humorous. The other part of this, and we've kind of mentioned it, it's something that'll probably come up in my uh, final questions or remaining questions here, but I think it's extremely novel and audacious to basically invent that we're going to make this a true story that's not actually a true story. Because yeah, everybody they, believed it forever and ever that they based this somehow on this and they were grappling at straws and now they've kind of admitted it so many years later that it's one of these classics, but um, that's that's pretty audacious. Well, they didn't even tell the cast. They didn't even tell Francis McDormand that it was not a real story until they did the rap party. Oh, I guess I... Okay. I didn't know that they told anybody even at that point. Yeah. I would have held that one pretty close to the vest for a long time. (laughs) Yes. So, they actually thought they were doing a real crime show. Alright, I'm going to move over to classicness. I gave this a 9.5. This is somewhat of a period piece, even though it's not too far in the past of what this movie was made for. I think they depicted this for, what, 1987? Something like that, even though this movie came out in 1996. So, it's not like it's a huge gap, but you do have a little bit of hindsight. And um, the setting is pretty classic. Um, they they got the diversity quotient for Minnesota in 1987 pretty well um, constructed. And <laughs> a Native American. <laughs> yeah, that, that's yeah. Well, and a random Scandinavian who is just kind of like this guy who doesn't even look like he's there most of the time but is unusually violent with the uh, name yes. Gare. But, it, you know, these, these this feels pretty similar to what I thought 1987 Minnesota or rural Minnesota would have felt like. And, you know, they make certain homages to, like, go for hockey and um, other other pieces of this, and there really doesn't seem to be anything that's necessarily out of place I think they were drawing on a lot of their own experience to put this together, and so that's why it's kind of really held up. But I, I, I don't see any major issue with anything they were doing. And ultimately, the even though it's kind of a fabricated story, this is pretty good and on point for what we've mentioned as rural crime. Uh, this is pretty realistic. They were kind of ahead of creating it where, like, not all crime needs to either be, um, like you're a Batman or Bond villain, or you need to have these, like, really serious crime dramas like Heat. And I can express, uh, some, some sense of reality. This was set in 1987. Um, my first trip to Southwest, well, I mean, I'd been through the area, 
years before on a vacation with my family, but the first time I got to really experience rural Minnesota was with your mother. <clears throat> that would have been March of 1988. So pretty contemporaneous with the time that this movie would have been taking place. And it is was so, so close. And I'm not exaggerating when I say every bar, because um, I would, you know, the guys all during the day would go into town and they would hang out at the, at the, uh, at the cafe slash tavern in town in very rural Minnesota, and they would play pool while the women sat in the other area and had coffee. And the guys would have one beer, usually, um, maybe a beer and a soda, and they would play the or play the pool. It was always the pool. I never understood why they always called it. We're going to play the pool. It's kind of like the almost the opposite, which is the British never say the hospital. It's we're going to hospital. Just never really understood. But anyway. It is very realistic in this film, and it's clear that they were uh, relying upon their experiences. So I'm just going to add a few more points in the the classicness, I guess, um, category or my ranking, because I I feel I need to justify a nine and a half. Ultimately, I think from the emotional standpoint or the feeling of this movie – I don't think that you have to really remove yourself, that all of the parts that are simultaneously either funny or serious or suspenseful or any of those still work no matter how many times you watch the film. And frankly, I probably could have rewatched this right away and it still uh, works in that regard. But also, I think this was ahead of its time a little bit on uh, we, we get the tone and tenor of this movie or kind of the similar presence or presence, uh, premise of this movie through the TV show, and all of that still works. I think you could basically pick up this movie, drop it in now, and it would still be about the same. I would concur with that. So what did you have down for classicness, then? I had a nine. Many of the same reasons. The only reason that I uh, stepped it down was that it just kind of... There's a certain aspect where it's not a film that's right on the on the front of your mind when you're looking back on films. It's not something that's like indelible where you go, oh yeah, or whatever. And that was kind of the standard. It was like it was one of those films where if you went up to somebody and said, "Name some great films from the mid eight '90s," you might have several candidates, and then you'll go, "Well, what about Fargo?" Oh yeah. So to that extent, it went from uh, a 10 to a 9. All right, so that'll average it out to a 9.25 overall between the two of us. Rewatchability, again, our most subjective category, but this is, I I graded it slightly higher than the median point, primarily from the uh, standpoint that this is humorous and so it's a little bit more enjoyable for even the subject material that's going on and because of some of the acting performances and the rest of it and how kind of short and digestible this movie is you can easily sit down and um, plow through this without much problem 
you know, I, you and I enjoy some of these 90-minute films a lot more than we do the two-and-a-half-hour slogs. But I gave it a 6.5. Ultimately, this is a somewhat of a thinking film. I think there are so many deeper concepts to what's going on here that it's not just simply um, an enjoyment movie. And two, I'm not somebody who's going to revisit this um, just for the sake of revisiting it. It's not something that uh, I readily just enjoy or pop on for my own entertainment in the same way. But I think it's better than the median film. So I thought Six and a Half was about a good spot. Um, I actually went for 6.5 as well. Um, okay. And this is why that um, I, I kind of came to the... It, which, even though it is rewatchable and I enjoy it, I, I have a hard time with black humor for the most part. Um, I need some time. Part, <laughs> part of the humor aspect of it is that you see the absurdity in the violence. And if you watch it too often, you just focus on the violence. You need to separate again from where you are watching the film and let some time pass. I mean, I find it difficult to believe it's been 24, 23 years since I watched this film all the way through before. It really, it shouldn't be that long, but this is a film that's about a three-year cycle for me, I would say. You just have to kind of give it that space so that you don't focus on the violence as much as the absurdity of how the violence is being perpetrated. In some ways, that's kind of similar to how you end up watching something like Pulp Fiction, that it's so absurdly violent that uh, you, you are taken out of it. That it's so over the top. Uh, another film that you and I enjoyed recently in the last year that kind of picks up on a similar trope is uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But we won't spoil that movie if you haven't seen it. That, I know you complain about me spoiling older movies. That's at least within a year that I can throw up the spoiler thing and not have it be a complaint. All right, it still is reasonable. All right. Yeah. So you and I both had 6.5 for rewatchability. The audience score on this one was 93, so for 9.3. Overall, with uh, the averages between the two of us, 9 for legacy, 8 for impact significance, 8.5 for novelty, 9.25 for classicness, 6.5 for rewatchability, 9.3 for audience score. Gives us a final of 50.55, and uh, number 10 on our current list, well... I, I take that back because we have a couple of films that are tied in there that at number seven and number nine, um, this would fit in as the 10th film, depending on how we ended up ranking those. But it's just below uh, some like a hot alien um, a little bit. There's a little bit of wiggle room, but this is just ahead of apocalypse now. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I find it fascinating in retrospect when you start telling me that, and I go, yeah, I agree with that. I don't know, maybe we're using our Stanley Stanley Kubrick or rubric, excuse me, formula well enough. Anyway, uh, remaining questions. Uh, you want to give your first one, or sh you want to let me go? Can you imagine the who found that uh, suitcase full of money? 
when it came spring and it yeah. melted? Yeah. Whoa! Do you think that some guy's riding along the highway and then sees that thing and stops and picks it up and goes, looks and sees this all this cash and goes, I'm not saying a freaking word. I that thought crosses my mind every time he buries that in just basically the snowbank. And, and part two is they do the scene where it goes down one side and the other, and he's kind of like, oh, uh, how am I ever going to find this again? Because there's nothing unique about this terrain. Oh, I'll just take the ice scraper and pound it into the top of it, and that will do it for me. So... I had a question based on the whole um, true story aspect, but I think they've kind of answered that in some of my research. So I'm going to actually skip over that one. If I were to ask a question, and they've said that the Minnesota nice accent is kind of a character in itself to this movie, it's memorable. I already nominated it as a co-indelible piece about this movie, but for guys that are from Minnesota, why play up the accent and thus associate your home area with that forever so that it becomes its own running joke? <laughs> because sometimes you just have to because it, it in and of itself is the joke. Yeah, but what Minnesota or Minnesotan uh, or any northern rural Midwesterner is proud of the accent anytime somebody repeats it back to him. Oh, we're visiting in from New York now. Can you show us out to our cabin? And and just, I I don't know. It seems kind yeah. of a, a little bit of a slap in the face. No, you you have to kind of laugh sometimes at yourself. I mean, I grew up in a city called Beloit, and I remember going off to college, and there was a guy that had been in high school two years uh, before me that had been at, at the same college. And I get to this party, and everybody grabs me, and they pull me off uh, into the bathroom, and everybody's standing around, and they open up the lid on the toilet, and they take a quarter, and they drop it in the toilet and said, remind you home because it went bloit. Oh. And so, yes, and so you either have a choice. You can laugh at it or you can be offended by it. And if you're offended by it, no one likes you. So you make fun of the situation. I, I so, think that these people are unsuspecting, and it, it's kind of personal to them to really play this aspect up. I, I think it's no, an, they're I, laughing. I, I, they know they know that this is a farce. Mom will not watch this movie again because of it. I understand, but your mom's not the actor. Your mother has a limited sense of humor. She finds no. things that are funny. She finds things that are funny for the most part but not necessarily things that she holds close and dear. I'm sorry. I find that in the uh, worst way, I am in opposition to that opinion. 
My mother is a comedian's best friend because she's like a drunk audience without the drinking. She laughs at everything. Yeah, but... That's why you married her. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, anyway. So... All right. We're going to need to uh, kind of put a kibosh on this one. I think we've probably uh, taken it to its extent. But, uh, so first off, next week's movie, uh, before we kind of announce it, it's going to be a bit of a tribute for the two of us. I know that, and I put this in my what I've been watching uh, column that I normally put out for um, each month on the blog. So if you've been following in our show notes, if you visited my personal blog, I put out a lot of different articles uh, on both of the two shows that we're currently operating on the Ronnie Duncan Studio Network. But it's an actor that you and I both have enjoyed, that we admired, um, that we... Uh, I, part of the way I described it was I knew that if I ever put on one of the original Sean Connery Bond films, I could always get you to sit down and stop whatever you were doing. And so sometimes I would intentionally put them on while you were working, and I knew you were in such a um, weird mode, because then it would automatically make you stop and just kind of um, take, a, take a mental break for a while, uh, being your former assistant. So, but... He passed away this weekend, and the fact that I, I mentioned it in the column a little bit, but when I called you the other day and uh, mentioned it on, I, I think it was Saturday morning. Yes. There was a collective, because I could hear in the background my mother telling Grandpa at the same time, and the fact that there were three generations of us, all collectively at the same time, having this almost uh, moment of grieving yes. simultaneous to each other. I think is unusual that somebody has such a collective effect on the culture at large. So we had talked earlier on, part of this was as we were going to do um, some of the older classic Bond films when it came to putting out the new Bond film so that we could kind of tie things in. Obviously that's been delayed quite a few different times, uh, but since this was at least one of the times, it feels a little bit fitting in that sense. And so we're going to try and do Goldfinger next week, um, provided that uh, we can find you access to the movie because it's not currently streaming. So I don't know if you have uh, that available to you. But that is the movie we're planning on covering next and just as kind of a mini tribute to him. But before we go, I would like to also announce a special episode that we're going to be doing coming up so before i do though dad would you mind grabbing both mom and sarah okay i have to find them first but that's fine did you find them yes they're on the way they're in the sunroom okay they said they'd be right here and there's a thunder so it's either them what? or heard what all right, so, <clears throat> all right. So we would like to announce that there's going to be a special uh, birthday tie-in episode. Last week you mentioned that you enjoyed doing the show, 
and I thought it's a good way of being creative as a birthday present. So uh, over the next coming weeks, uh, because it's not currently available on streaming, I have the Blu-ray, so we're going to try and watch the movie over Thanksgiving, but uh, then we're going to do a collective show. Both of my sisters and my mother have agreed to be a part of the show. We are going to do My Fair Lady as our first musical episode on the podcast. Uh, all right. Okay. So, happy birthday, Pop. Well, thanks. Um, yeah. I think that's a good place to stop. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Next week, we will be discussing, as we mentioned before, Goldfinger. So stick around on this feed for that one. Please email the show if you would like to get in contact with us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast, that's one word, at gmail.com. Again, that's greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM. 